LiveFlow saves me 14 hours a month. Terrell Turner, TL Turner Group. LiveFlow saves me two working days a month. Michael Alleman, Alleman Business Group. We're saving over 15 hours a month using LiveFlow. Marissa Stillwell, Bookkeep. LiveFlow has given us the gift of time back. Sarah Jones, Ascent CFO. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LiveFlow, later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where witnesses get intimidated with non-disclosure agreements instead of severe beatings. I'm Caleb Newquist. I'm Greg Kite. And Caleb, we've got a great interview today. Uh, Tell the listeners out there who we talked to. We have two guests on this episode, Greg, Jason Zuckerman and Matthew Stock. Jason Zuckerman is the founder of Zuckerman Law and has been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top whistleblower attorney numerous times. Matthew Stock, who goes by Matt, is uh, the director of the Whistleblower Rewards Practice at Zuckerman Law. So, And in addition to being a lawyer, Matt is a CPA, a CPE, and a former external auditor. Overachiever, that Matt. Uh, and Yeah, he's this, got a lot of letters. He's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've seen more, but he's still, that's impressive. Yeah, impressive. Uh, and the other thing that was impressive was this interview. Uh, I was very, I, you know, it's it's so funny when we interview these people that we've either barely met or haven't met. You never know what's going to happen. This was a great interview. Very interesting. I got sucked in immediately and we had a fantastic conversation. Yeah, it was. It was. There was a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, Jason and Matt both share a ton of insight on their work with whistleblowers. So if you've witnessed a massive fraud at a public company and you'd like to make a few million, do- few million bucks, you know, for your trouble, uh, you should call them. Uh, so now let's listen to our interview with uh, the two fine gentlemen from Zuckerman Law, Jason Zuckerman and Matt Stock. So Jason, Matt, thanks for joining us on Oh My Fraud. Uh, we're really excited to talk to you, aren't we, Greg? We're real excited about this conversation. Absolutely, because you guys are experts in stuff that we that, that obviously is a huge intersection with what we talk about all the time. But the 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 depth of knowledge and exactly what you do is a really interesting kind of uh, it's it's going to shed some light on on and give us a fuller picture of of fraud in general and and some of the consequences of fraud and some of the ways people can deal with fraud if they're if they're involved in it uh, specifically as whistleblowers. So that's that's exciting to me. Yeah. So Matt, I thought I saw it with you. I mean, you actually started your career as a CPA, right? And you were an auditor too. So I was just curious, like what was that early experience like for you? And when did your interest in fraud and whistleblowers and like basically how you got to where you are now, just give us kind of that journey line. Sure. And uh, thanks for having us. I know we're both big fans of the podcast. I actually just recently listened to Francie McKenna's episode, which I really enjoyed. Um, my background, yes, I uh, got my master's of accounts, CD, CPA, and I worked for a big four accounting firm uh, as an external auditor. And from there, I really, I guess I enjoyed the fraud aspect more than the uh, issuing 
um, clean opinions on every single audit. <laughs> maybe maybe trying to find something where you know, a restatement could be involved. But I, I've always been interested, I guess, in the program, uh, especially working for an IRS whistleblower journey throughout college. And so always interested in the whistleblower award aspect. I uh, went to law school with a focus on becoming an attorney who represents whistleblowers uh, who report to government agencies to try to expose fraud. Right on. So you so you weren't as excited about giving your clients notes about proper presentation of uh, rent income when the, there's an annual escalator involved. That wasn't that wasn't really the <laughs> the juice that you yeah. needed from your career. Take it. <laughs> Ticking and tying, and by the way, they do important work, and I'm not trying to diminish anything that external auditors do. And they do a lot of work too, but I guess to to go through lots of audits, and you know, you're 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 not sure. Um, I guess get, getting more involved in, in actually detecting fraud, which isn't necessarily a part of external auditors what they do, but speaking with people who can uh, have information that can result in restatements, having information about fraud, and yeah, less ticking and tying and more uh, working with government agencies. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So, I, I, we don't at all want you to diminish the work that external auditors do. We will take care of diminishing yeah. the work that external. <laughs> that's what we do. Auditors do. Fair. And and but but one of the and and uh, you said you listened to the Francine McKenna uh, episode, which is awesome. One of the things that Francine just hammers is she's like external auditors don't do their job right when it comes to fraud. And we even see like if you look at the ACFE reports on fraud, we see the external auditors find it's like three or four percent of the frauds that are discovered are through the external auditor. In your time as an auditor, were you able to find some fraud? Did you stumble upon those with your, uh, you know, statistical samplings? I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say and not say on that point, but I will say that it's it's pretty rare. The PCAOB findings and the ACFE reports um, are pretty accurate in terms of fraud detection, what they're able to uncover, what their responsibilities are, extra, uh, big four accounting firms or anybody who's an external auditor, what their responsibilities are when it comes to auditing um, a publicly traded company. But yeah, I'll, I'll let you guys and, and Francine speak more uh, bluntly about, about those issues. Can, 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 I, can I just add one thing on that? This Jason. When I read that there were auditors working at the KPMG firm that thought it would be a good idea to try to get the answers for an ethics exam, that said everything to me about what's going on in the audit industry. There you go. I'm a huge, huge fan of Francine, I used to read her old blog, RE the Auditors, yep. for years, and she did more to hold those big audit firms to account than the PCOB and the SEC, I think. She's been outspoken about that for years, and these firms have gotten up way too easy, and we rely on their work. I mean, when I look at an SEC filing, I rely on the work of the auditors, and it's becoming way too obvious that many of them have been absolutely asleep at the wheel. Look what's happened to Wirecard. I could give all kinds of examples. We need to get a PCOB and SEC that's going to prioritize that. We've actually helped clients blow the whistle on a lack of audit, um, audit um, independence and actually helped one client blew the whistle on the lack of audit independence, and that did result in an SEC action. But there's so much more that the SEC and the PCOB have to do in this area because 
I think the oversight's been way too weak. And we also have to ask ourselves, is it a good idea where we have these audit partners that need to get this work, that have to fight hard to get this work? Is that really a smart way to do it? And I'll leave it to other people you might interview on those issues, but I think we really have to ask ourselves whether what we have now um, has worked and whether we have to rethink that whole model. Matt? Now, was was that was that client that you just spoken about? Was that client an auditor? Um, this was person, not an audit firm, who had worked um, at a large corporation that that brought up an issue of a lack of audit independence. But I will say, I've had clients who were employees and partners at the big audit firms mm -hmm. who blew the whistle, and then there was an act of retaliation. So a few of these big audit firms, they go out there and they tell their clients, you know, if, if an individual blows the whistle, you have to look into their issues, there can't be an act of retaliation. Mm -hmm. But within those own audit firms, they don't always like it when people blow the whistle, and they really don't like it when an employee blows the whistle on a a client, because as I said earlier, they're so eager to hold on to clients and get more uh, clients. But I'm happy to report that there are laws out there that give an, an employee of an auditor the right to bring a claim if there's been an act of retaliation because they blew the whistle. Well, yeah, because I think I mean I think that's probably a question that a lot of our listeners might have is is if they're an internal auditor or if they're an external auditor, they may have it in their heads that that isn't a path for them to go down because of the nature of, you know, their job or, or, or their, or their uh, fiduciary responsibility to a client. Like, so can, so just my broad question is, it sounds like it is possible for internal and external auditors to become whistleblowers, but what is that path like? Is it really complicated or is it more straightforward than it seems? I mean, I'll, I'll leave it to Matt to go into it, but at a high level, I would say this. If you work at an audit firm, or even if you work within a large company as an auditor, you can blow the whistle. You have every right you know, to bring up an issue about a violation of law. And if there's an act of retaliation, you can bring a claim under various laws, including the Anti-Retaliation Business Surveys Act. But I think what you are asking us is, can you also get an award, let's say at the IRS and SEC? And Matt will go into that it's a very hard issue. And one of the things you have to look at because there are only four very large audit firms is if you get known to blow the whistle or you can be able to work again in that field. But Matt can, can go into the issue of when an auditor, either either within a corporation or an audit firm, is, is eligible to get an award. Matt? Sure. And, and I guess, should we start with a description of, of what the SEC's whistleblower uh, program is, just to give uh, everybody an idea? The answer to the question is yes. Uh, internal auditors, external auditors, accountants, people, uh, individuals whose primary duties involve compliance, uh, all of these people can be eligible for SEC whistleblower awards, uh, depending on whether you're internal, external, what information you're seeking to report, you could be eligible for an award. You may have to take certain steps before reporting to the SEC in order to obtain an award. But uh, the short answer to the question is yes, they, they can be eligible to receive awards under the SEC's whistleblower program. That's, uh, that's amazing. 
uh, <laughs> the, the I I love the okay I love the idea of retaliation I can't not get back to that so Matt one of the things I'm interested to know so on uh, you guys sent us a, a list of uh, of stuff that you that you love talking about and one of them said that you can explain what types of retaliation are prohibited under various laws but. And as lawyers, I know that you'll be right on board with me by by explicitly stating that you can say which uh, types of retaliation are prohibited under law. Ipso facto, you should be able to tell me what types of retaliation are not prohibited under law. And as someone who may need to retaliate against someone in the future, I want to be fully armed at what I can do to make their life miserable if they're a snitch. Because as we all know, snitches get stitches. Tell me everything. Okay, well, I'm not going to help you go after the whistleblowers, <laughs> but I will explain what it means to have a claim of retaliation. So a lot of people get this wrong. They think, well, if I didn't lose my job, I don't have a claim of retaliation. But we all know employers get smart, right? If a person blows the whistle, they're like, if we were to ax this guy, it's going to bring a lawsuit, right? Yeah. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to make his life miserable. Right. We're going to change his job. We're going to harass him. We're going to make very, very um, untrue um, allegations about him. We're going to read every email he ever wrote and we're, you know, we're gonna, look into what he did wrong. We're going right? to give him a reserved parking spot, but it's going to be right next to the dumpster. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the good news. I don't know if they alter where you park, you have a claim, but the scope. <laughs> <laughs> of a prohibited act of retaliation is very broad. What is the legal standard? Anything that is likely to dissuade a reasonable person from further blowing the whistle, i.e. bringing up a concern about a possible violation of law. So if they were to demote you, if they change your job duties, if they were to suspend you, they put you in on, on admin leave, you know, they alter your pay, they put you on a on, on, on a plan where, you know, if you don't do certain things to improve your performance, you're out. Mm. So there, that is very, very broad. And I see a lot of claims like that where the employer wants my client out. So they make his or her life miserable and that, that won't work. My, my clients have a claim. And even if you don't have a clear loss of your pay, you still have a claim. Here's a really good example of one. There's a high profile case that was brought under the anti-retaliation provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act by someone who is a CPA. So this will interest your audience. He blows the whistle to his employer about non-compliance with one of the rules of the generally accepted accounting principles. And the employer says, you're wrong. We're not doing about it. He goes all the way to the board. They don't do anything. He blows the whistle to the SEC and the SEC went back to the GC of this company and they say, the general you counsel. To look into this. We want to make sure you will preserve all evidence. So what does the GC do in his infinite wisdom? He sends an email out to this group that you know the, this employee worked with saying, because this person blew the whistle, you need to preserve all of the documents you have. And then not surprisingly, no one wanted to talk to him. No one wanted to work with him. He resigned. He didn't lose his job. He got another job. He brought his lawsuit and the court held that the mere act of the GC who thought it was a good idea to out him because he blew the whistle, that yeah. in itself was a prohibited act of retaliation 
he brought a claim and he was able to get a pretty good recovery. Yeah. So essentially a scarlet letter at his, at his job. And so I can imagine there would be all, I mean, there's all kinds of repercussions from something like that. It, it, it is. And it's, it's hard for my clients. I mean, for so many of my clients, my job is, is more, uh, it, their job isn't just how they make a living. They put their heart and soul into it. They believe in it. And when they're either out of the job or no one wants to talk to them and they feel very, very isolated and alienated, it really is hard on my clients. And if they work in an industry that's very small, you know, they can get blacklisted. It's very hard to go on to other jobs. So we see some headlines that, you know, a few people got a large award at the SEC, which by the way is very rare. But for the vast majority of people who blow the whistle, it's really, really hard. There often is an act of retaliation. When my clients blow the whistle, the employers often will not look into what my client blew the whistle about, which is what they should do. They look into my client and, and, and they look oh. at all ways that they're able to dig up dirt on my client and make mm. their life miserable. So, you know, I'll be honest with you. I have a huge respect for my clients. They blow the whistle because it is the right thing to do, but it ain't easy. Absolutely. Okay. So a couple, couple quick follow-ups with that first off and thank you very much. So parking spot next to the dumpster, not explicitly prohibited. So I appreciate you uh, giving me that that heads up, but, but here's the other thing. This is, this is a bigger, bigger question. So for anti-retaliation laws to come into play because because I'm trying to I'm trying to weigh out two things because on the one hand you said that there's a tiny fraction of whistleblowers who actually get some kind of like reward or compensation or you know uh, bounty I don't know what what the official term is but there's a tiny fr- fraction of them that actually get something monetary as a result of the whistleblowing do, do, do the anti-retaliation protections they can't just count for people who end up getting this SEC whistleblower award, what do they do? The anti-retaliation, just if you blow the whistle on anything, how does that, is, how does that work? It is very broad. So okay. there are a lot of laws and there are laws in certain areas. Like one law, uh, I'll give you an example. The anti-retaliation provision of Sarbanes-Oxy applies if you blow the whistle on a violation of a rule of the SEC. There's also a law that will apply if you blow the whistle on a violation of an IRS rule. There are a lot of laws that usually are aimed to apply for people blowing the whistle on a very specific area of law. But if you go into state law, in some states like the state of California, New York, Virginia, and New Jersey, they have very broad laws that if you blow the whistle on any violation of law and there's an act of retaliation, you have a claim. But here's what's key under the anti-retaliation provision of Sarbanes-Oxley Act. The plain meaning of the statute says if you have a reasonable belief. So you don't have to be right. Now, you do have to have what we would refer to as an objectively reasonable belief. And that's a sliding scale for who you are. So if you've got a CPA and you say this part of our annual report is not accurate, you're going to be held to a higher standard than someone who's not a CPA. So what what a court would ask is, would a person with that employee's uh, prior experience, that employee's prior education, would they have reasonably believed that what they saw or they knew it happened in the workplace 
is a violation of an SEC rule. So you don't have to be right. Um, and why do we have that? Because this law, i.e. the anti-retaliation provision of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, is a result of all the scandals that, that, that were happening when the law was in place. There's Enron, there's WorldCom. We want to have a law that's meant to get people to blow the whistle early. You don't want to wait for people to become aware of a violation, let it play out, people get harmed, and then they blow the whistle when they know there's been a clear violation. We want people to blow the whistle early, and that's why all we require is that they have a reasonable belief. So I'm curious, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a step back because all this, the, the, this, all this anti-retaliation stuff is pretty fascinating. But what I'm curious about is maybe starting at the beginning, which is if, a, if there's a prospective whistleblower out there and they know about your law firm and what you do, how do they typically approach you? What's that scenario like? Well, I'd say a lot of our clients come to us after, unfortunately, there's already been an act retaliation, but I always like it when people come to us while they still work in an employer, they let us know what happens. Very often, it's people who began to bring up issues. There's been a lot of resentment for that. There's been a lot of backlash, and they ask, what are their options? So Matt, and, 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 and he'll go into this in just one moment, we'll let them know what are their options maybe to report to the SEC or the IRS or to other places within the U.S. government where you might get an award. I often will give them some advice about what to do about their job, right? And it's going to vary, it will really vary widely. For some people, maybe it's a good idea to call up an ethics hotline and they don't reveal who they are. But more often than not, what I'll tell people is the opposite of of speaking to a hotline, which is email your boss and other people higher up at the company and make it clear what exactly do you know about, what is the violation, make it absolutely clear and make sure that if we were to go to the jury and say there was an act of retaliation because this person blew the whistle, I don't want people who are involved in an adverse action to say, oh, well, I don't recall this person brought up years ago. I want there to be clear evidence. So I might help that client to blow the whistle to their employer in a way that's just black and white. It's absolutely clear. So people who are higher up can't claim they didn't know who blew the whistle. But Matt will, will go into what will he say to those people about some options at the SEC. Matt? Sure. And so I guess to make it clear, Jason's speaking about the employment aspect of the retaliation. And I'll be speaking more about the reward aspect of uh, individuals reporting to the SEC. And so from that perspective, I guess we get to what the SEC's whistleblower program is. After the 08 financial crisis, the Dodd-Frank Act was uh, enacted in late 2010. That created the SEC's whistleblower program. And essentially had three, I'd say three goals in mind, or three, I guess, pillars of the program that really outline what it does. And the first being is that it offers monetary awards. And that's to individuals who provide original information to the SEC that leads to a successful enforcement action with monetary sanctions in excess of $1 million. And then if the SEC brings that action and uh, the order is over a million dollars, whistleblowers are eligible to receive between 10 and 30% of the total monetary sanctions collected in that action. And I think it's important to note 
all whistleblower awards that are paid out of the SEC's whistleblower program come from what's called the Investor Protection Fund. So Congress established this fund that is separate from, uh, I guess, return funds to investors in order to pay awards because it wouldn't make sense to collect, let's say, a million dollars from a Ponzi scheme and have to pay, you know, $300,000 to a whistleblower and only $700,000 to the investors. Instead, the investors get the whole million back and the uh, whistleblower's award is based off 10 to 30% of the collections. The second part about the program is that whistleblowers are allowed to submit tips anonymously to the SEC if they're represented by an attorney in connection with their tip. And this is pretty critical too because uh, other whistleblower programs like the IRS's whistleblower program, they do not allow anonymous submissions. And in a lot of our cases, I'd say whistleblowers really want to speak up, but they, they're fearful of retaliation person as Jason mentioned, all the potential retaliation that potentially comes with submitting tips, even if it's just the SEC who knows uh, who the individual is. So it allows for the anonymous tips, it provides awards. And then third, as Jason already mentioned, uh, the Dodd-Frank Act provides protections against uh, retaliation. And there are other uh, laws that come into play as well, like Sarbanes-Oxley and state laws. And so from the inception of the program, they've received more than 52,000 whistleblower tips from individuals in more than 133 countries. And to date, they've issued 1.3 billion in awards to 273 whistleblowers. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by LiveFlow. LiveFlow connects QuickBooks Online directly to Google Sheets and Excel allowing you to have spreadsheets that automatically update with the most recent QuickBooks data. Hundreds of accountants, bookkeepers, and small businesses are using LiveFlow today to create automatically updating budgets versus actuals, dashboards, and consolidated reports. Yes, consolidated reports. You can connect one spreadsheet to multiple QuickBooks online companies and see the numbers updated in real time. Because LiveFlow can be fully customized to create reports and dashboards, LiveFlow could also be used to surface possible fraud. For example, you could create a sheet that is a list report for invoices or checks and filter it for transactions over a certain amount. Then if any questionable transaction is entered into QuickBooks, it would automatically appear on the sheet. Or maybe you get really aggressive and create an entire dashboard that automatically surfaces transactions that are out of company norms. To learn more about using LiveFlow and how you can save 20% off your first three months, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash LiveFlow. That is ohmyfraud.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Stop manually updating your spreadsheets with LiveFlow. So back to the whole idea of uh, staying anonymous so, so what you said, just to make sure that I got it right. So I can, and, and this is specifically for the SEC program. I can choose to stay anonymous, but I gotta have someone. I need to have an attorney representing me, like one of you guys. Is that correct? That's correct. If they have an attorney in connection with their tip, then they can submit anonymously. And at that point, you don't need to put anything in the submission to identify the whistleblower. The SEC would only be aware of the attorney who represents the whistleblower uh, in that case. Gotcha. Can I, can, I, can I just add something to that though, to, to be clear on it? That aspect of the program is great. And we've had clients who remain absolutely 
absolutely anonymous. They got an award. No one knows it was them. No, but I like to be upfront with people. There are lawyers out there who will say to a prospective whistleblower, you know, you blow the whistle, your name will never get revealed. That is not an accurate statement. And here's why. It might be a thing. Very often, as you know, at the SEC, they'll open up an investigation. They'll gather the evidence. They'll be able to go to the registrant. Often they can work saying it gets resolved. But certain things will go all the way to jury. And if they do, there's a high risk that the, the individual who blew the whistle will get revealed. We've worked on a few matters where we started at the SEC. Then it got referred over to the Department of Justice. At that point, our, our client might get revealed. And, and, and that actually has happened to, to some clients. And I'll say something that's a bit odd. When a client works at a large organization, you might think it'd be hard for them to know who blew the whistle, but there are usually just a few people who know about the violation. So we find that often it, it is a bit obvious who blew the whistle. So this part of the program is great. We've had clients that have been able to get an award no one knew it was them. But I like to be upfront with people that if you're going to blow the whistle, your name at some point might get revealed. Just, 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 just to be absolutely upfront with people. Right. So what, and, and then, which is awesome. All that stuff was exactly what I wanted to know because yeah, cause you'd think it, you know, just by the power of deduction, you likely, if you can't exactly figure out who it was, you can get pretty dang close. So two questions. One, how, how often do, I mean, just, uh, just, you know, don't, you don't have to go check your records, but just according to your gut about how much, what percentage of your clients choose to stay anonymous. And then if you're anonymous, do the retaliation laws still count? Can they, yeah. How does that, because if you choose to be anonymous, are you then foregoing your, the anti-retaliation provisions? Yeah. So let me be, be clear on that. So one, Almost all of our clients, when we go to the SEC early on, want to be absolutely, absolutely anonymous. Now, we might get on a call, let's say, with an SEC lawyer, and I make up a new name for my client, which gets really odd because I don't want to slip up while I'm on the call. <laughs> right, um, right. And, 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 and you use their real name. But sometimes when my clients have been speaking more and more to the SEC and see the SEC is, you know, is, is, is actually going to act on it, at certain points, they might say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad, you know, to let them know who I am and, and whatnot. So, you know, but usually our clients want to start out and be completely anonymous. But to your other issue, you know, that's a, a really hard call. Yes, for the purpose of the SEC program, you may want to be completely anonymous. But if you think it's obvious to the employer that it's you who blew the whistle, you might not want to be anonymous, meaning you you might want to make it clear to the employer that you blew the whistle at least to, to, to the employer. You might not want to say to your employer, by the way, I just met with the SEC to blow the whistle on you, but you may want to raise a concern to your employer. Now, I'll let you know, almost all of our clients, when they call us, they've made some effort to blow the whistle to the employer, right? They, they're, they have seen a clear violation in the workplace they bring it up. So it usually is obvious. I'll say something out of an annual report of the SEC about approximately 80% of the people that have gotten an award from the SEC blew the whistle to the employer before the SEC. And why do I bring that up? Because when this 
when this program was put in place, there's a lot of opposition out of some very large companies and very large banks. Why? They're like, as a result of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, we had to put strong programs in place in order to handle our employees' concerns and make sure we have adequate controls. This is going to undermine those, th those programs because people will go to the SEC and they won't blow the whistle to us. So they had asked for the SEC to put in place a rule saying you're eligible to get an award only if you blow the whistle to your employer before you go to the SEC. That did not work, and that's not what the rule is, though there are things in place in the SEC rules that provide an, an incentive for people to blow the whistle to their employer before the SEC. But I bring this up for this reason. If we have close to 80% of people who are blowing the whistle to the employer before the SEC and they get an award, so they're obviously onto something, right? It says to me, a lot of employers do not get this right, meaning either they don't look into the employee's allegations or they do, but they make an effort you know, to cover it up or to say there's no violation. So that would indicate to me a lot of very large companies have work to do in how they handle their employees' concerns. So I'm curious, when you guys have people approach you with what they think to be uh, a claim of wrongdoing, oftentimes, I mean, not oftentimes, but I say there are definitely circumstances where whistleblower, there, there, there are circumstances where there's clear violations and then there's gray areas. And then it seems like maybe, uh, let's say, you know, that, that clearly, I guess, distinguish legitimate claims versus, I don't know, not, I don't want to say illegitimate, but maybe opportunistic claims. Mm. How do you yeah. guys kind of suss that out in like, are there red flags that you look for or is like, how do you, how do you kind of approach those circumstances when they come up? I'll let Matt start. Sure. I, I think the, and by the way, this factor, this analysis goes for both, uh, Limit retaliation claims and claims for award, but you're looking for material violations. Do the well the violations essentially? Um, I guess for example, if this if a violation was corrected, will result in a restatement of a publicly traded company's financials? Will or or any restatement or a new footnote disclosure? Is there anything that's misleading that could be uh, misleading to investors, or is the violation maybe a gripe? with you know, a certain manager over an issue that may or may not lead to a restatement of, of the financials. And so from our perspective, I think the first step is just assessing materiality of the issue. Yep. And then as always, same with both claims, is there evidence, like Jason mentioned, did you raise concerns in writing? Is that, it, did you report internally? Did you report this to um, you know, superiors, the audit committee? And what evidence, I guess, did you show to the superior? What evidence do you have to show the material violation? Is it pretty clear evidence? Is it, you know, is it smoking gun evidence that violations are occurring? Or is it, you know, something that may be a bit more circumstantial uh, or gray air evidence where you're not entirely certain, but you smell, you know, something may be up, but you're not entirely certain. Uh, I guess, Jason, do you have anything to add after that? Yeah. There was an ad in the 80s, may have been for Arby's, Where's the Beef? I don't know if you remember that, that ad. Yeah. I want beef. I want, I want meat. Look, 
the the way we work for almost all our cases is we get our fee only if our clients get signed. I'm not going to waste my time on any person who's likely to speculate or sign. I want me. I want evidence. I want I want to hear from this person that they did their homework, yep. um, that they looked into this, that they've asked other people in the workplace if they're concerned about it. I want strong evidence. Less than half of 1% of all the people that blew the whistle to the SEC have gotten an award. We've done well for our clients, and I think it's because we would only bring a claim that's very strong. We're not going to waste our time unless the client has clear evidence. One of the reasons that we're able to do well is we've gotten to know well people at the SEC, and we bring them strong claims so that when we call them and say, hey, I've got a new one like this other one I brought you, they know that we're only going to bring them something that's really good. We would never waste our time with with any claim that's that's weak. It's just not worthwhile. Mm-hmm. So in terms of just circling back, one of you, I think maybe Matt, I think it was you, or, or maybe even Caleb, you used this term, opportunistic claims. Because I... I mean, you said there was one, what one point three billion dollars of of awards that were issued by the SEC. That's not nothing. Are there people who have like? Do you feel like there's pe- anybody out there? I'm, my assumption is the answer is no. But do you think there's anybody out there who's just like going? I'm just here waiting till they screw up, and then I'm gonna blow the whistle, and then I can have all the money I need to retire forever. Is that? Is there opportunistic claims like that? I would think there are in any time you have any program like the one at the SEC, that's just going to be part of it. But when you look at this at, at a high level, this program has worked mm-hmm. very well. And what we've heard from, heard from people at the highest levels of the SEC is a lot of examples where they've been able to go after some fraud that they would not have known about. Why do we have this program, by the way, in part? Because of um, um, Harry Markopoulos. He blew the whistle about the Bernie Madoff scandal for years, and it got ignored by the SEC. We've blown the whistle on some, on some other schemes, a lot like the scheme that was put in place by Bernie Madoff on a smaller scale, but that still goes on. And this program, what, what we've been very proud about is we've been able to work with the SECs to halt some of those schemes where they can go into court, they can get an asset freeze, they can halt a scheme. And what we're most proud of is that a few of the actions we brought, they've been able to give back money to people who are harmed. So this program works well, but to your point, are, are there people who go to the SEC with a claim that's meritless? Absolutely. I, I have no doubt, but the SEC is very smart about it. They have a group called the Office of Market Intel, which looks at the new claims, and they're able to look at them pretty well and say, okay, this one is worthwhile to look into further. We don't see anything here because you know there's not a lot of detail. There's not a lot of evidence. Gotcha. That, make, that makes sense. Let's talk about just a little bit kind of the hesitation that a lot of people have, because we talked a lot about retaliation and like the retaliation is very real and it can be very, uh, it, it, it can definitely have a significant negative impact on people's lives. So 
is the is the thing that keeps people is that the main thing that keeps people from from coming forward have you guys ever have have you guys ever experienced or have your clients ever experienced like threats to their personal safety and i i guess i ask these questions because i'm sure people have it a lot of people probably have it in their minds that this is just an easy pass like like whistleblowers they do the right thing they go through the proper channels and and everything should work out for the best but that's probably most often not the case so i'm just curious as to like what what really prevents people from coming forward because there's plenty of people who are just sitting on these things and i think not only not only for you guys because you're running a, a law firm that makes money from 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 whistleblowers but also like to just to hold like especially companies accountable for the wrongdoing that's going on internally and and so Sorry if this is very convoluted, but <laughs> what I'm- no, no, it's not. What 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 you're asking is an issue that that we deal with when we when we speak with prospective clients every day. Many of our clients fear that there will be an act of retaliation in the workplace. Many of our clients are at a point in 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 their their livelihoods where they're they're earning a lot. They work very hard in order to get mm-hmm. there. You know, they've done very well. And they know if they speak out, they not only c- could lose that job, but they might not get reemployed. Um, I've had some clients who blew the whistle, who worked as a lawyer in-house, who went tire ups and say, no, actually, you can't do that. It violates the law. And all of a sudden, they're out of a job. They're out of a job. But if you want to get another job as an in-house lawyer, it doesn't really help to get known to someone who, who blew the whistle. So very... Often our clients are in a workplace where there's some other people who know about the violation. The easy thing to do is to look the other way and say, hey, if I stay here long, I'm going to get my stock options. I'll get my RSUs. You know, I'm going to keep my head low. Much harder to speak up, though I think that is the right thing to do. But there's a point you made earlier that, that, that I want to get at, which is this. For some of our clients, they're not just worried about whether they're gonna keep their job. Their personal security is on the line. And here's what I mean by that. People around the world can blow the whistle and get an award. It's not just people in the US. So we've had clients in Africa, in Eastern Europe, in Latin America, who blew the whistle on a violation of the FCPA. And we've had some who said they felt that there was a private investigator outside their home who is keeping a, a close eye on them. They felt that if they were known to blow the whistle, uh, you know, something could happen to them, maybe their spouse, their children. In the US, our clients mainly are concerned about whether they might lose their job, but we have clients all around the world that are concerned about a lot more. So it is not easy to speak up, but this program has worked. There are people all around the world who've blown the whistle to the SEC, and that has led to to an enforcement action um, under the FCPA, often by the SEC and by the DOJ. And, and that's worked very well because if not for the opportunity to get a reward, those people probably would not have spoken up and the SEC and the DOJ would not have known about those violations. 
Um, so real quick, just to make sure that uh, that what we're talking about is accessible to all of the listeners. I, I already know the answers to all these questions. What's an RSU? Restricted stock unit. Okay. Uh, what And what is the FCPA? <laughs> Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So if you're a U.S. corporation and you operate abroad and you pay any form of any kind of bribe, it doesn't have to be you actually hand over a large bag of money. It can be in some other ways and you get work out of, out of um, any government throughout the world. That is a violation of the FCPA. And we're, we're happy to say we actually have a client who blew the whistle on a violation of the FCPA who got an award. I can't, can't go into any of the details, but that's been a, a very hot area. And I think almost all of the very, very large awards at the SEC have been people who blew the whistle on a violation of the FCPA. Matt, do you want any? No, that was perfect. Okay, and, and that's great. What, um, so you, I know you can't disclose the details of, of cases like that. We'll make sure that we put all that stuff in the show notes, right? Caleb, their name, their, their <laughs> yeah. physical address. So we're good. We got yeah. that. Uh, and then I'll uh, lose my law license. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all a joke. Um, DOJ, Department of Justice, SEC, that's the Southern, uh, the, the Southern Athletic Conference. Is that... Securities That's the and Exchange one. Yeah. Commission. Secure, oh, Securities Exchange Commission. Um, uh, so, uh, so, <laughs> so what? Which is what is it though? Really, it's the Southern what? It's not the Athletic Con- Education Southeastern Conference? Southeastern Conference. Southeastern yeah, Conference. Southeastern. See, that's yeah, how yeah. hardcore of a college football fan this guy is. Um, <laughs> but here's the, here's the question. So you were saying. You, like in in other countries, you hear of people who it's like I got a I got somebody who's who's in a the, you know there's a car outside my house the engine's running but the lights are off and I can see somebody smoking in there something bad's gonna happen a brick's gonna come through my window what is the worst I mean and, and so because of that you make it sound like that's uh, th- that in the United States you don't see stuff like that happening what is the worst like in your determination just coming to mind what's the worst retaliation that you've seen happen in the United States to people? We we actually have one. I'll keep it at a very high level because I won't go into details where it was obvious that our client blew the whistle, which led to a huge action by the SEC. And the person who was the primary mastermind of the scheme wrote all kinds of stuff online, made you know this video that he or she put on YouTube say, I know that this person and our clients was very specifically named blew the whistle and I'm going to come after that person and this and that. So we, we heard that we got a hold of the SEC said, you know, you should be aware of this. See if you could help our client, but it, it can be hard. We don't see that often, but, but that has happened. Um, we've had a few people call us to say, we want to blow the whistle, but you're going to have to give us a place where we can't, where we'll be able to live and stuff. I said, I checked with my spouse. We do not have an extra room <laughs> where you can stay for about eight years. And these things can go on for a while. So I'll, I will be able to represent you, but I, I'm not going to be able to have you move into my home. Um, and if we were to call the FBI and say, you know, can you get into them and you know, them into some kind of a program where you provide housing and security, 
not likely. So um, that's uh, not something that usually gets offered by either the SEC or the DOJ. So, so when and when you said in this in this particular case, somebody put a video online and said they'd come after him. Do you mean coming after him physically? Like, I swear, if I see you out in the parking lot, it's go time, mofo. That kind of that kind of stuff. That's how I viewed it, Matt. Ah, geez. Yeah, the, the, they were specific aspects of the video and how it was produced. That was, was clearly physical threat in, in nature. And I, I do want to, I guess, point out a, a few things in terms of steps that we could take to protect whistleblowers when they're submitting information to the SEC. So like I mentioned, they can submit anonymously to the SEC if they're represented. You can exclude all information or any information that might potentially lead specifically to the whistleblower. And there's one important thing too, we work with the SEC in some of these cases where if there is smoking gun evidence, where maybe only a few people would be aware of that evidence to suggest to the SEC what documents they should request, but maybe not just specifically that document, but maybe emails from this date to that date, you could request those so as to not identify exactly what the whistleblower, the email the whistleblower was referring to. And so I guess just to make the odds a little bit better of the company to have to guess a little bit more, who was the whistleblower? What does this request relate to? So there's certain things that can be done in order to, I guess, protect whistleblowers throughout the process. But like Jason mentioned, that there's no absolute guarantee that whistleblowers will remain anonymous throughout the entire process. We certainly have that in several of our cases. But again, there's no guarantees. So okay, so again, Jason, before we started recording, you said what's what's the what's the slogan? You said we go after the bad guys and. Sometimes the our every people, once what, in a while our clients get paid. Get, okay, oh. we go after bad guys, and every once in a while our clients get paid. And then is there an asterisk after that and says, and we do not offer any sort of witness relocation Airbnb yes. Yes. in our homes or elsewhere? Is there exactly any? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's like I got a, I got a spare room. We, you we, can. We we've seriously had clients who've asked that are like, if I blow <laughs> yeah, the whistle, yeah. I gotta worry that. My, you know, my life, my, my, my security and safety is yeah, on the yeah. line. So I want you to right. provide housing for me. Now, this, this program is great, but one problem with it is it's very slow. So when we bring it, it can take three to four years for the SEC to perform investigation. Once there has been an, an enforcement action, right, then we can apply for an award. That can take a few more years to learn whether we get an award. So, I mean... Right. We've, we've had a few where we bring the SEC clear evidence of an ongoing scheme and they might go into court. They might be able to halt it. We had one last year where we actually just about eight weeks after we came to the SEC with our clients, they were able to halt a big, big scheme. But more often than not, I mean, you're talking about having to wait for years and years. And the idea of having someone in my home eight years, probably not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Unless they're one of your children. Yes. <laughs> and even that's a bit of and, a burden sometimes. And, right. Even that, that. even that seems like maybe yeah. a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on the the aspect of stigma, the stigma around whistleblowers. And I guess my general sense of the stigma is that they're they're troublemakers. And so I, I think you guys probably have some more sophisticated thoughts about the, what the stigma is and why it exists. So that's my first question is kind of addressing the stigma, why it exists, but then also 
do you think the protections in place are sufficient uh, for whistleblower protection? And what would you like to see improved? Those are those are are, are hard ones, um, Matt. I'll I'll let you start first, and then I'll I'll go. Sure, I'll address the stigma aspect. And I think if you asked the employees of Enron and WorldCom if they like whistleblowers now, they might have a different answer than they would have had when they were making tons of money and the stock price was up thousands of percent in a very short period of time. And so I think that gets also right to the answer of what's the stigma? Well, if people are making money and you're not rocking the boat, everyone can keep making money. Even if you're not aware of certain violations, maybe you think the violations aren't that big of a deal. It's a smaller accounting fraud than an Enron or a WorldCom, but you know, each quarter you are manipulating revenue. You're, you're uh, either pulling sales forward, you're uh, channel stuffing, you may even be delaying revenue. You have too mm-hmm. much revenue, you've already hit Wall Street's expectations, why not bang that for the next quarter? And the problem with that is, is, like all frauds, they eventually collapse. And so I think the stigma exists until you are actually impacted by some of the fraud that whistleblowers could have halted earlier. I would be pretty certain that anybody who was involved in a Ponzi scheme if, would they ask, would they want a whistleblower to stop it sooner or would they want the mastermind of the Ponzi scheme to spend all their money? And so when a receiver is finally put in place and the, the frauds, I guess, uncovered, halted, and the receiver distributes money, would they rather have penny on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar? And so, again, I think the stigma exists up until you need the person. Um, and then at that point, you love whistleblowers. I think the laws that provide a claim for someone who's been the victim of an act of retaliation, on the one hand, were meant to be very, very strong. But the way they've been implemented and what we have to do when we bring one of those cases is really hard. And and here's what the issue is. My client has lost his or her job because they blew the whistle. I'm going up against a very large company My client may have blown the whistle on an officer at the company, as has happened in a few of my cases. They can write a blank check to a large law firm, maybe a few, and just go after my client, bring a lawsuit against my client, make up all kinds of stuff about my client, just make it as hard as ever to do it. And I'm happy to say we've had some where we went all the way to the jury and we were able to win, but I will be honest, it gets really ugly. They can do a lot to, to make it very hard for my clients, you know, to have to fight for years, even after my clients win, it'll, it'll go up on appeal for years. And what you can actually get under some of these laws is not that large of an amount. Often you get what you have lost. So let's say, you know, you, you weren't able to get reemployed by the time you win, you would get what you would have earned in that period. And if you had another job where you earned a lot below what you had been earning, there's an offset for that. So, you know, if you're a large company, maybe you'd be concerned, but you also might say, you know, we'll just hire a big firm. We'll make it ugly. And if we lose, you know, it might be a few million dollars, but it's not that big of a deal. I've had a few cases where I've been up against a big firm I've got a witness under oath, I'm at a deposition, and I've got eight lawyers on the other side. I mean, when my clients blow the whistle on people who are very, very high up at a corporation, 
they get angry about that. They do not respond well to an effort to hold them to account. And they will spend a lot of money on outside law firms to make it ugly. But I'm happy to say when we've got the evidence on our side, we can still do uh, very well under these laws. But, you know, it's not easy. And I'll, I'll say one last thing. Now that, that everything's on the internet, right? If you bring a claim and you go to litigation, a lot of that's going to be online, right? It's going to be available. And if you are applying for work, when a prospective employer were to input your name in a Google, you don't want the very first thing to show up that you've been involved in a lawsuit. But the point that Matt made, I think it's gotten a lot better. I had a client who was at a large bank, blew the whistle. He was in a few articles in the Wall Street Journal. He then got reemployed at a hedge fund. He's doing well. More and more of my clients, I think, are willing to speak up and to put out their name and to be known as a person who blew the whistle. I'm happy to say a lot have been able to get reemployed, but it's not easy. Well, we're we're getting near the end of our interview today. I've got I've got a, another. This is more of a nuts and bolts question, um, and this comes from the fact that I there's been a couple of times in my life when I've been recorded. Uh, without my knowledge, but uh, well, someone started a recording, an audio recording, and once it was a video recording, and and I was like, "Hey, is your phone on? Are you recording me right now?" And it and it drives me nuts. I I hate it to no end, but I do know. I, so I live in Utah, and I'm pretty sure in the state of Utah, you can record a conversation as long as you are part of the conversation, even if the other person doesn't know you're recording it. And, uh, and, and you guys used the term in, in some of the information you sent us. You called it surreptitious recordings. I had to look up the word surreptitious because I didn't know that or what an RSU was. Um, but what, what are, t- tell us about, um, like, can, can you do that everywhere? Is that just Utah? Is that, and, and when would you advise against someone, do, like, wearing a wire? And when would you say, absolutely, go into your boss's office and wear a wire and try to get him to say something crazy? Yeah. I, I have a few things on this, and then I'll go to Matt. If you're working at an Enron and you're really in on a lot of meetings where they plan the schemes at the highest levels, there I'd say to a client, it's a good idea to make a recording. We'll bring that to the SEC. And I, I've had some clients who made a lot of recordings that were very, very helpful to, to people at the SEC. One of them, it, it really helped the SEC be able to take enforcement action and, and the client got an award for that. But I'd say to be very, very careful um, on a few issues. One, um, at least half of the states, I think, do require that more than one party offer their consent. So if you violate that law, you could be prosecuted for that violation. So I'm not going to, as a member of the bar, give advice to client to violate the, the, the law. So you have to be really, really careful with that. And I'd say, if you're going to make a recording in order to bring a claim under one of the anti-retaliation laws, like the Sarbanes-Oxy Act, I think it's a really bad idea. One, you're very likely to have to hand it over when you bring your lawsuit. You're very likely to get a request for the employer to hand it over. When they get it, they're not going to react well. Many employers, even if the state law will allow the recording, employers often have a policy that will prohibit it. 
So if they let you go for an unlawful reason, but then they become aware that you made an, a recording in violation of the employer's policy, then they could say, ah, we had a good reason to let you go. And, that's, and that will give them an opportunity to make an argument known as an after acquired evidence defense. And if they could do that, they could cut off all of the damages, all of the back pay on the date they become aware of that violation. So, you know, I think you really have to think through why you're going to make a recording. If you're not going to get something really good, I don't think it's worthwhile. But if you really are employed at a place like, like an Enron, where you can get really strong evidence and hand it over to the SEC, it could give the SEC a huge edge because if they get people under oath who, who say something that's at odds with what's in the recording, that's very helpful to the SEC. But in an ordinary case, especially if it's just an employment case, I think it's often a very bad idea you know, for, for people to make a recording, but people do it all the time now because everyone has a smartphone. Right. So, so like if you're in the meeting where they say, okay, everybody, the first agenda item is how do we do illegal stuff? Okay, uh, let's just brainstorm. <laughs> then that, and let's, then we're aware of that. But maybe short of that, you might, you might be in a, a it might not, the, the cost benefit might not add up for you. Correct. And more often than not, when people go to me and have a recording, they often will, will, will sound like an ass on the recording and it's more helpful to the employer than it is oh. to, to my client. So I'm not a huge fan um, of gotcha. it. I'm, I'm really not Matt. Do you want anything? No, I, I think that was perfect. Gotcha. That, that was perfect. Actually. Yeah, you sound like an ass. We're not going to use that. Yeah. What are you thinking? <laughs> um, so this is my final question. Um, and, and both of you can answer, uh, what surprise, what, what's, you guys have been doing this for a long time. Uh, what still surprises you about this work that you do? Sure. Uh, I'll go first. I, I'd say a few things surprised me. One is the extent of fraud that actually exists. I, oh, man. I, I, the amount of calls that we get on a weekly, daily basis, you wouldn't, you'd be shocked to hear at how many things, any investment I make, I'm, I'm I think, my, I think I'm 10 times more concerned than anybody who makes investments otherwise, because all I do is hear about fraud all day. And I guess just for one of the, the most recent one, the cryptocurrency frauds, people need to stop sending money to people they don't know online <laughs> what? in order to, to wow, trade that's, for them. <laughs> and, that's just generally also, good life advice, I think. <laughs> We, we, we've got way too many calls about people losing just tons of money that they've sent to random people online and then they ask them for a fee to withdraw their fake profits and they send them more money. And it, the amount of fraud that exists, uh, I, I think that uh, the SEC whistleblower program will continue to be just a great program going forward. Um, the second thing that I think, I guess I'm less surprised about it, but I know that uh, clients are always surprised about is just the timing of the enforcement actions and the entire way to the process. Even if they have really great evidence, it depends. The, the timing of the SEC's enforcement action times is based on a variety of factors. If it's an ongoing Ponzi scheme where there's actively stealing investor funds and transferring them overseas, maybe you'll get the SEC that quickly. If it's accounting fraud at a big company, maybe they'll be uh, lack a little bit more slowly or see that as less of a not priority, but timing-wise, what needs to act first. So, it, like Jason mentioned, the SEC's investigations sit for the last two, three, 
even more years. And then even after the SEC brings an enforcement action, uh, currently after you apply for the award, it takes about two years for the SEC to issue a preliminary award determination. So from start to finish, you're looking at five years um, on the lower end, and it can be many more years depending on the length of the investigation, whether the defendant litigates a variety of other factors. Jason? I would add just a few things. In August 2022, we're going to come up on an anniversary of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. As you may recall, it was mm-hmm. enacted in August 2002. And you look at some of the schemes that, that led to the enactment of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and we see stuff like that again and again. Yes, on a smaller scale, but it just blows me away that a lot of the fraud schemes the SEC has gone after that, you know, the DOJ have gone after. We see them again and again, and not to be hard on the audit firms. I'm sure they do good work, but I do ask myself sometimes, like, where are they? So it it just is a bit surprising to me how we see these things play out again and again. The other thing that's a surprise to me is how employers will react to people who blow the whistle. Some employers get it right. I should be fair. Some employers really look into my client's allegations and, um, you know, make an effort to act on them. But the reaction I see all too often is they really open up an investigation of my client and look for a way to go after my client. And people who are very, very powerful at large organizations don't like to be held to account. And they they're very inclined to go after people who blow the whistle. And that's gotten a little better, but I think it's really where we were at prior to the enactment of Sarbanes-Oxley Act. That hasn't been altered, which on the one hand is good for my firm because hell, there's always work. People blow the whistle and they're, <laughs> as a result of that, there usually is, uh, is a pretty bad reaction to it. But for the sake of my clients, sometimes I wish I had a bit less work. Like people should be able to speak out and hold on to their jobs. I think that's long overdue. Um, and I haven't seen that really get in place at, 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 a, lar- at, at a lot of the large corporations. That's all I have. Um, Caleb, uh, your statement that this was your final question was a tacit implication that my previous question about surreptitious recordings was, in fact, my final question, where, and I believe both Mr. Stock and Mr. Zuckerman can testify to this, I in no way said that it was my final question. All I said was that we are near the the end of our recording, and therefore I do reserve the right to ask a final question. Mr. Stock, Mr. Zuckerman, do you you concur? Sounds good. (laughs) Ask away. Absolutely. Caleb, I, I will request an apology. We can get to that in the outro. Uh, but <laughs> okay, great. I'll, but I'll give me time. Give me time. I'll give me time to think it up. <laughs> but let's let's bookend this whole thing. So at the very beginning, Matt, we asked you what got you into fraud. Jason, we never we never heard your origin story. What was it? Uh what happened? What happened to you? What hurt what hurts your soul to make you uh decide that pursuing fraud was uh was the thing you wanted to dedicate your your uh your career to 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 tell you the truth in high school i took a lot of classes and as an undergrad about u.s history and people who spoke up in order to fight 
things that that they felt was wrong. And I was inspired by that when I got out of law school. Um, it was close to the period of the enactment of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, and all of a sudden, these laws were were beginning to expand. People being able to blow the whistle and have, have a claim of retaliation, be able to blow the whistle and get an award. And what hit me about it, and really what what's an honor for me and Matt, you know, to do this work is this: one person really can have a huge impact. As I said earlier on on this podcast. All too often, our clients work in an organization where a few people are aware of the violation of wrongdoing, and only one person is willing to speak up and to put it all on the line. And I can't say that there always is a good outcome, but I can say that a lot of our clients who've put a lot on the line have had an impact. They may not always get an award, but they might halt some, some, some sort of a violation. And to have clients where it's not just about them, it's, it's about how can I help others? How can I look out for others? It really is an honor for us you know, to do that work. And it really has inspired us to work very hard for those people. So you know, this, this is a neat area of the law to, to be in. And when we're able to halt a very large scheme where people are being harmed, that's, that's a really important part of the work, even if our clients don't get an award and we don't get a fee, the, the opportunity to have that impact really makes this work worthwhile. Perfect. That's, that's awesome. Thank you guys so much for, yeah. uh, for, Thank you being, for your work. On, being on our little show, our, our little, our little skit that we, <laughs> we it, do. It's, it's, it's a, it was, it was a very neat experience uh, to, to be on, on, on the show. So cool. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Great. Hey, re- remind me where in the because I'm sure it came in. Where in, where in the country are you guys located? Matt is down in Florida. I'm just outside of DC. But our, okay, our, our, our our work is all around the world, actually. Sure. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. Having and you know, especially in today's day and age, who needs who needs an office? Yeah. Not not us. All right, Greg, that was great. Yeah, but I think I should I should apologize because I, I, I think you should too. Yeah, yeah. I prefaced one of my questions as if it was going to wrap up, and maybe it threw off our rhythm. I don't know. I don't know if there's really any you know if 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 it it really uh, disrupted the conversation anyway. But I should not have done that, and so I apologize. Well, and I and I want to apologize to Caleb because oh. I know that I said like, "Hey, we're wrapping things up," and I get it that that could have been misleading to you. So we're still friends. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Tentatively, we'll yeah. see. We'll see how this. We'll see how the rest of this outro goes. And yeah, we'll, I mean, we've we, we've got a few more minutes here. This might be the last. Oh my fraud! Just right. this could things could. Sh- spiral out of control check back in two weeks who knows also just want to let everybody out there know to clarify where the where's the beef was wendy's it's not arby's yeah he said it was arby's we have the meats is arby's not where's the beef similar not the same and also uh we have the meats is said by ving rames for arby's he's the guy he played marcellus wallace in pulp fiction so um yeah 
And now I'm no attorney, but I do believe that Jason can be charged with perjury for saying where's the beef was an Arby's quote. I mean, I think I think he risked disbarment. At least if I'm being honest. At least. So, uh, hey, if you out there in uh, in podcast line, if you want to drop us a line, if you want to tell us uh, different ways that you could uh, use the broad whistleblower anti-retaliation <laughs> laws and leverage them to your favor, please send us an email. We'd love to hear about it. Or anything else, any other thoughts that you have, send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. And Caleb, uh, if people want to talk to you directly and leave me out, where can they find you? Oh, in Denver, Colorado. But if uh, you mean on the internet. What's your, what, yeah, what's your street address so people can come right to you? I mean, uh, you know, get on touch with me. Get in touch with me online and then we'll maybe see. Okay. You know, uh, but on Twitter, it's at C Newquist and LinkedIn at Caleb Newquist. Greg, what about you? You come to my house. <laughs> 84057. Come here and talk to me face to face, damn it! And that's it. There's no other. There's no. There's nothing else. You have no other options. I, I hope you get a fucking uh, a train of weirdos. <laughs> I I kind of do too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh my fraud is written by me, Caleb Newquist, and Greg Kite. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review or share it with a friend and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For the accountants out there, if you listen to the podcast on the Earmark app, you can earn free CPE credit. So do that if you want free CPE. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh, oh my fraud! My fraud! Oh my fraud! And by the way, it, oh it, my! Fraud. Why are they still listening at this point in the podcast if they don't like the show? If you're still listening, you like the show, so leave a review. Leave a and review. If you don't come to my house and fight me. 